Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey now, welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast, everybody. Appreciate you all keeping the wind in the sail of the Corolla pirate ship. I would love to see the Corolla faithful over with us at drdrew.tv and drdrew.com. Find uh, After Dark over there. I think you might dig that as well. It's sort of an old, sort of love line-esque mm, revival, let's say. And uh, Dr. TV, we do streaming shows most weekdays, uh, 3 o'clock Pacific time, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome my guest today. It is Robert Henderson. You can find his newsletter at robkhenderson.substack.com. Rob is a doctoral candidate in psychology in Cam- at Cambridge University, a uh, faculty fellow at the University of Austin. He has a you know, I've interviewed Rob a few times, I don't think on this podcast before, but his story is fantastic. He has a BS in psychology from Yale. He's a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. And as I said, he's now studying psychology at Cambridge. Rob, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Dr. Drew. Great to be here. So I don't know where to start with you always. There's so much I want to get into. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about your journey, though, and why your journey is relevant to the present moment. In, in other words, you, you look at today's world and some of the excesses and the things that are fucking crazy, frankly, in the current sort of political, social, social media world, and you come to it from not just having been informed as a your, – your actual degree is social psychology, isn't it? Isn't that the field of study? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, so, you're, you're, psychology. so you're not only a PhD candidate in social psychology, you have this rich experience – uh, that is not unusual, frankly, in the United States today, and you found a way out. Um, talk talk about that if you could, like what your experience was growing up and why that informs your present moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like you said, I mean, I'm I'm currently in my my final year of the PhD program here at Cambridge in England. Before this, I was studying at Yale, but before I, um, you know, sort of joined these these. Uh, uh, universities, my life was a lot different. Um, yeah, I mean, so backing way up, you know, I've, I've discussed this in, in various outlets. I think most recently I wrote a, a piece called America's Lost Boys and Me uh, mm-hmm. on uh, Common Sense, Barry Weiss's Substack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was born into poverty in Los Angeles. Um, you know, lived in a car for a little while with my mom. I never knew who my father was. We later moved into uh, this kind of slum apartment uh, dwelling in, in Westlake in L.A. And, you know, my mom became very addicted to drugs and was unable to care for me. So I spent, um, you know, a good portion of my early childhood living in foster homes, uh, you know, just sort of bouncing around L.A., you know, different seven different homes in total. And, yeah, later I was adopted um, just a couple months before my eighth birthday um, by this working class couple. And we settled in this kind of dusty, uh, working class town in Northern California called Red Bluff. Uh, but then there was, you know, there was a divorce, there was sort of separation, my adoptive father stopped speaking with me. And, you know, after, after never knowing who my birth father was, then living in all the foster homes, and then losing contact with my adoptive father, because he chose to stop speaking with me, it was just, you know, that was that was sort of like one thing after another. And from there, my, you know, my grades plummeted, I started getting into a lot of trouble with my friends. And, 
you know, there was, there was a lot going on in my early life. And, you know, that's, that's sort of, you know, just scratching the surface. Um, <laughs> my mother, you know, my yeah. adoptive mother, you know, she, she, yeah, I know you're familiar with some of this. I mean, my adoptive mother fell in love with a woman. They sort of raised me for a period of my adolescence. And, you know, there was just a lot of drama and disorder, relocations and separations and so on. That was a, you know, this is sort of a snapshot of, of uh, my early life. You know, when I, when I, the, the part of your story that, that I've been sort of, I mean, there are two parts that, that I've been sort of ruminating about. Um, again, it's a story of abandonment, neglect, chaos, trauma, and, you know, uh, social circumstances that led you further astray, horrible school systems, horrible foster care, whatever. It's just, but, but the two things that have sort of been rolling around in my head for a while is, I'm wondering how you perceive the foster care system. I remember you, I, and for some reason, one of the stories that, that you told that stands out in my head is when one of the other foster kids, you had many kids around you, misbehaved. The foster mother punched him in the face. And that was mm, just, and that's just yeah. foster parenting. It's like, what? <laughs> what? You, you, did, did, yeah, that bother, I, did that strike you the way it struck me? I mean, I never had. I mean, I was really little uh, when I was through. So I was in from ages three to eight. And so, you know, I never personally, at least in my memories of of that, ex- those experiences, never personally experienced like physical violence, but I did see it around me. And, you know, some, some of these kids were bigger and, you know, they, I guess, maybe posed more of, a, or at least they were perceived to have posed more of a threat. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, of course, there was some of that. There was also like kids beating up on each other. Too. I mean, you know, I was, you know, both a victim and a perpetrator of a lot of that, too. And, you know, that's just is sort of physical conflict was was sort of the, the normal day to day experience of, of that environment. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, it's interesting now as someone who studies, I mean, you know, studies social, social psychology, but also evolutionary psychology, too, to sort of see that, like, you know, people treat one another differently. There's sort of different standards of treatment you know, I'm not, not as a sort of a moral principle, but just as a sort of descriptive observation, people tend to treat their family members, you know, blood relations a little better than they treat strangers. And so, you know, even if you have siblings who are all related to one another, conflict inevitably arises. But when you have a bunch of kids who are unrelated, who've only known each other for a few weeks, uh, the likelihood of, of conflict, you know, physical, verbal, what have you, um, just skyrockets. And so that was sort of the the day to day life of, the, of of many foster kids, there, which there, explains why they have so many problems. There's a similar uh, piece of data around uh, men coming in the household, not from the genetic pool, and the probability of sexual abuse, physical abuse, whatever of the children it just goes skyrockets. The Cinderella effect. Yep. Yep, of a male, but it's a male, not a not a evil stepmother. It's a stepfather or just a just a male in the household. It's not genetically related to the children. It's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, the Cinderella effect. I, I remember reading about it in one of one of David Buss's books. Um, yeah, where you know the likelihood of a of a stepfather um, injuring or or murdering a stepchild is something like 700 times greater yeah. than a, a biological yeah. parent yeah uh, yeah yeah i mean it's really uh you know, and so so yeah the 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 sort of lack of blood relations is you know it's it, it can it can contribute to to instability and disorder so i'm uh, curious that you brought up david buss's name his evolutionary psychology books are some of my very favorite but we can say his name out loud again 
He was being crushed last I looked. Is somebody we can now talk about David Buss? It's okay. Are you talking about it at Cambridge? I mean, I do. Is he still <laughs> under the shit? I bring list? him up. Is it still something? I don't, still I don't know. I, I think I might be that, that. I think like his when he was vilified, that might have been a little before my time. I think he's more or less been rehabilitated, is oh, my impression. Oh, I good. mean, I still, I mean, I've cited his work. I've, I've mentioned, I, re- I reviewed his, uh, you know, his, his last book, uh, When Men Behave Badly. I wrote a review of that in Quillette. I thought it was very well done. Um, but I know, I know that like, you know, there are some people who still have it out for evolutionary psychologists and what have you, but I think it's, you know, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't been quite as bad in recent well, years. Well, because that's great. That's great news as far as I'm concerned. Cause everyone say, you know, look, if you're a biologist, you're an evolutionary biologist. That's how biology works. That's just it. That's just what biology is. It's evolutionary theory. It's it. It's it. And as psychology, to the extent that it is a biological process, there's an evolutionary component to it. That's just it, period. And mm-hmm. to, to, to pretend that's a, just a point of view or it's a just-so point of view, that's insane. That's literally denying the entire field of biology. And it makes me furious when, when that happens. And you know, for about five years, you couldn't even say David Buss's name. It's ridiculous. Wow. Do you remember when that was, those five years? Was it in the I 90s? It feels like it's just ending. I, 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 I haven't heard his All name right. out loud in a while. Maybe it's 10 or 15 years. I, okay, I used to use him on HLN because I was a big fan, and that would have been in the mid-2000. No, no, that would have been, you know, hmm. 2015-ish. I was using him, and then all of a sudden, you were just, hmm. you were crushed, you know, if you dare to quote some of his, his uh, particularly male, well, particularly, look, post-structuralism denied all of that, right? And particularly as it pertained mm. to male-female differences, because that started to bleed into gender arguments, and so you just couldn't go there. You just couldn't talk about it. And so, uh, God's yeah. sakes. Yeah, yeah, this sort of elimination of gender boundaries altogether, which is, I mean, it's it, it's silly. I mean, the, the ev- evolution wouldn't work without you know, sort of male, female sexes and you're a trans you know, hater. sort of you're like a trans, the biological that's, that's definition. Transphobic. That's an attack <laughs> exactly. on the trans community. It's attack. I can't speak to you anymore. No, I know, but I mean, just, just by definitions, right? Like the way that sex is defined is sort of who has the smaller gametes, you know, the sex cells, you know, just that's, that's what the definition the, the, of male versus the smaller female and, and the, and the, the fewer. whole idea of it. Smaller and the fewer. Yes. That's it. Yeah. And the, the sort of sex that invests more in the offspring and yeah, just like everything makes much more sense when you have at least, you know, an evolutionary lens at your disposal and yeah so a lot of a lot of the ideology stuff the political stuff arising just um you know it's just not grounded in in anything scientific so is that getting better are you you're are you pushing back on that is it are you able to sort of i i think because of your background and the you know your your story we haven't gotten into yet how you went to yale and the air force and all this stuff which is all very interesting and what you perceived at yale while you were there which is again you you're given a bit of permission because where you've been, you know, where you've come from to say stuff that other people, certainly a a privileged white male cannot say, could not say. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like I've, I've tried my, so initially when I, you know, when I first arrived at Yale after the military. Yeah. I mean, I just generally, I, I didn't like the idea of like using identity. I don't like identity politics. I think that you know, there's this great quote I read from um, uh, Naval Ravikant, who's this sort of tech entrepreneur, but also he's sort of, you know, he's sort of an, a philosopher as well, who says uh, the, the more it matters who said it, 
the less what is said, like the less importance you can assign to what is said, essentially, or like, you know, the truth is the truth, regardless of who says it is mm-hmm. another way of thinking about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if I say it versus you say it, or, you know, some someone else says it, it shouldn't matter uh, in terms of the veracity of the statement. But, you know, we live in a world now where for whatever reason that matters. And so well, hey, listen, when I do but, speak but on let's, more but, contentious topics. But yeah. let's let's be let's re- let's remind ourselves that. Let me say this in a, a way that I'm going to say it strongly, but that um, f- French philosophers from the 1930s and 40s and 50s who have been completely disavowed by the French philosophical community as irrelevant have become um, uh, lionized in this country and with primarily the notion that truth doesn't exist. The truth is all relative. Yeah. And then you add critical theory onto that where the only thing that resists – the only thing that actually exists is the subjective and the political, which is anathema to everything scientific, anathema. Uh, so yeah. what do we do with all it's that? It's interesting. A lot of the criticisms too, you know, oh, like you mentioned before, like, oh, like white males or whatever. I mean – a lot of the ideas, like even that idea itself, I mean, post-structuralism and, and you know, whatever the latest variant of it is, critical theory is, these these were originated by white males, right? Yeah. Like Michel Foucault, Jacques yeah. Derrida, I mean, yeah. Karl Marx, right? Like no one ever says, you know, what, what Marxism spreads well, Those white males, like, those no are different white says. males. He's not really white, he's <laughs> Russian, he's Russian, he's Eastern. Uh, he's he's just, Eastern uh, European, that's different. Well, he, was, he was German, He was actually, German, that's right, you know, right. That's he was right. a German guy. That's true. You know, so this a German white male, aren't, aren't we supposed to be wary of them? But yeah. apparently not this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think it's important then. It's important to speak out, you know, to if, if you have something to say. You know, I, I've become less filtered i guess over time just because it's uh, i think part of why madness can take over is because sensible people are unwilling to express themselves who said that that's from the founding fathers somewhere right isn't it somebody said that something like that that uh, that's how, yeah. that's when uh, chaos rules but the truth is the truth and i, I like that and and it, it all we need is the restoration of that for the truth to be the truth again uh, and then we can start to rebuild our understanding of things and by the way derive benefit from some of the things that have been brought forth you know about gender and about you know i'm I'm all good i'm sort of i keep saying i'm hegelian like we went all one way direction let's bring it back to the synthesis let's do it you're smiling yeah yeah i think that's uh i mean that's interesting you know the whole sort of uh the synthesis this idea of maybe we are swinging back. And, and I guess I can feel it to some degree. There does seem to be in the last couple of years, especially within the last year, more pushback on some of the stuff that we were seeing. And, you know, and I think part of it is like you know, people like you, public figures who are willing to, you know, who, who are not ideologues, you know, who, who are, I think, in like making good faith attempts to get at the truth, people who have a platform and who are expressing themselves. I think this is giving more people courage uh, to, to speak their minds as well. I agree. I, um, and, I, and I don't understand ideologues i i don't understand that you you could look at human history and whatever ideology is the guiding force it's a catastrophe for humans always mm. whenever ideology yeah. takes over it's bad outcomes it as opposed yeah. to sort of more pragmatic truth oriented uh sort of you know something realistic about human behavior and we're sort of sort of working from that then then things are good because people are just trying to make it better for people based on who they are how we really are yeah so yeah, the spirals of silence can give rise to that. You know, I, I recently, um, so I, I wrote another book review recently of uh, this book, Noise: The Flaw in Human Judgment, by Daniel Kahneman. Mm, uh, Cass yeah. Sunstein was another co-author, 
uh, on that one. And one of the early on in that book, they made this very interesting distinction between um, uh, sort of like, so we've heard these terms madness of crowds, but we've also heard this term wisdom of crowds. And how do you know, like, so, so one idea of the madness of crowds is this idea that we, you know, people sort of, when you get them in a collective, they sort of lose their ability to think rationally, they indulge their passions, they, you know, uh, become more sort of animalistic. And then there's this idea of wisdom of crowds, where if you sort of get people together, they can sort of cancel each other's errors out and sort of, you know, collectively converge on the truth. And, you know, so they, they, they take this question up and say, well, which one is more reflective of reality? And interestingly, they say both are. Both it just are, depends yeah. on sort yeah. of wh- whether, um, whether the views are expressed publicly versus privately. So uh, if you collect people's answers or judgments in private and then sort of average out their answers, you'll often arrive at the truth. Uh, but if you ask people publicly to, you know, say like, you know, what do you think? And you ask them to say this in front of a crowd, often they won't express their true view and they get sort of carried away with becoming more preoccupied with social approval. And this is how you get people parroting one another's opinions and so forth. Often like what we're seeing on social media where everything is public and out in the open um, versus when you speak to people privately, uh, this is when the sort of wisdom of crowds idea uh, sort of uh, predominates and prevails. And so, yeah, I mean, so reading about that was an eye opener for me to realize like, oh, a lot of the madness of crowd stuff is just because people are sort of going along with the herd and they're not willing to speak their minds. Thus, we have secret ballots. That's ballots are things that are Mm -hmm. done uh, anonymously. One of the healthiest things you can do, of course, is get, well, adequate sleep. And for most people, that's at least seven hours of quality sleep. Hard to get that much sleep. Your mind keeps you awake, you're stressed, your schedule won't allow you. Wake up early, can't fall asleep again. Hundred reasons out there why you can't get seven hours of good sleep. But listen, it's important because your body heals when you sleep, right? You clear all those uh, amyloid uh, sort of precursors out of your brain. And if you're not getting enough sleep, you're increasing your risk of various illnesses. And you're making it even harder to lose weight for sure. Well, an easy way to get some quality sleep, make sure you're getting enough magnesium. Believe it or not, around 75% of people do not have enough, which may help explain why so many people have sleep problems. Don't run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement you find. Most supplements with magnesium use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. And since they are not the full spectrum, they may not fix your magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you need to get all of them if you want to have the calming, sleep-enhancing, optimizing effects. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthroughs by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed. You may be amazed at how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For our exclusive offer for our listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew and use promo code DrDrew10 during checkout to save 10%. Again, that is magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use code DrDrew10 at checkout. Guru Nanda offers you a better reason to smile. There are bacteria in our mouth that are part of the microbiome that need to be sort of in balance. They give you the bad breath. Guru Nanda coconut mint pulling oil is safe and natural. It reestablishes the homeostasis in your mouth. Coconut and mint pulling oil contains only the highest quality natural ingredients. And you switch that coconut mint pulling oil two to 10 minutes a day for fresher breath and a brighter smile. Sports happier gums, balanced oral microbiome. Helps replenish your mouth's moisture as well. Many leading mouthwashes contain alcohol, which uh, for my patients can be a, a slippery place for them. It really can. So Guru Nanda does not have any alcohol. It was the first to promote pulling to the U.S., 
and it was the first to market. Simple, natural, proven. Guru Nanda coconut and mint pulling oil freshens breath, pulls tartar, and establishes the oral microbiome and naturally whitens your teeth. Guru Nanda believes that oral care is crucial to your overall well-being. You can register now at gurunanda.com slash win to win a $500 Walmart gift card. That is G-U-R-U-N-A-N-D-A.com slash win for that $500 Walmart gift card. And you'll receive $3 off each bottle purchased exclusively at Walmart. Uh, But I will tell you, as far as the madness of crowds go, I have two things to say about that. A... We weren't allowed to talk about the madness of crowds three years ago <laughs> because because oh, yeah. uh, that also was under attack. What's his name? What's the guy that wrote the famous book about uh, just after the French Revolution? Uh, Le Bon. Le, Le Bon? Le Bon wrote this mm. book uh, called The Madness of Crowds. And uh, it was, oh, that's completely wrong. Absolutely zero, zero right in it. Well, of course, there's a lot right in it. And it was a very early primitive analysis. But it was based on just observation of what happened in the French Revolution. And there's another two-volume series that followed called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which talks not mm. just about the extreme behaviors that result in guillotines and mob action – and social media canceling, but also things like uh, cultural cultural crazes like mesmerism. He, he, they analyze yeah. things like mesmerism in there, uh, and they all come to the same conclusion. And and it, it is I, I would even divide it a little bit. This is not a, a exclusive divide, but it's a divide between the emotional and the cognitive a little bit, right? Because cognition is really what's at you know when you're sitting down and giving an opinion privately you're using more of that frontal part of the brain and when you're swept into a crowd it's a much more <laughs> motivated state emotional state right yeah yeah i mean when you sort of pit those competing motives of getting at the truth versus uh you know potentially destroying your reputation or you know, or you know especially d- during those early days you know the era that you were talking about with the french revolution i mean you could literally be killed for not expressing the right views. You know, fortunately today we don't have that problem, but I mean, we, we, you know, it's still a severe problem if your reputation or employment prospects can be undermined, threatened just because of your opinion, uh, especially, you know, if, if opinions that were totally reasonable to hold, uh, you know, up until just a few minutes ago, oftentimes, you know, things change so quickly about what's okay and what's not okay. These taboos. Uh, yeah. So, well, well so, the few um, minute thing is again, part of what was observed in the madness of crowds, which was nobody's pure enough. Yeah. Everyone's a sinner. No one can be, you know, and whoever was putting people on the guillotine five minutes ago goes up on the guillotine five minutes later because it's just, mm. it's just in the nature of this crowd madness. And it, and there is a whole other theory. I don't know if you've ever come upon this, but the scapegoating mechanism that there's a whole theory. Rene Girard is sort of the originator of that. Uh, he, he has a sort of a literary kind of an interpretation, but there's something in it. There's something in it about human behavior. He, he has a very specific construct about sort of a triad, you know, and that, and that if somebody wants something, the other necessarily wants it and will fight for it. But it really, to me, it's sort of a psychological process of people with primarily cluster B, cluster B personality disorders uh, collectively uh, acting out their aggression out there rather than against themselves mm. or each other. All Does that right. make sense? Interesting. Yeah, well, well I mean, it, so it's, so if you look at um, some of the research on on social movements and, and mass movements and so forth, I mean, they're often led by a very small percentage of the population 
uh, there was this. Uh, it's very interesting. You, uh, I saw you wrote that. It, it scared me. Economics. It scared me when you said that. I was like, it's "Shit, like, what do we do with ten percent?" Yeah, you said that. Something ten like percent of the population, as long as they're dedicated and fully committed yeah. and, and willing to impose their views, then the ninety percent will will sort of acquiesce. They'll 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 that sort was of a go scary, to views or at least was, be neutral. That was scary to me. And and I would so, argue, yeah, I'm like wondering who is this ten percent? Could be the cluster B people, right? Oh, of course, many of them, I think. Of course. Mm. I saw a, what was she? It's like a political theorist or something. I started following her on Twitter. And she said, you know, I'm really wondering if the extreme right and the extreme left are really along a political axis. Maybe there's something else going on. I said, yeah, maybe there is. <laughs> Why don't you tell tell me more? I think it's cluster B personality yeah. disorders. It's, I mean, that's that's who, look, before they were using the legal system. I've said this repeatedly in the recent mm. days that that when I was working in the psychiatric hospital in the late 80s, early 90s, I saw I saw a shift to all cluster B. And then at that time, every borderline that came in the pay, in the hospital had a minimum of 20 lawsuits under her belt. Minimum, 20 lawsuits. And the legal system had not I caught know. on yet to this acting out behavior th- of their aggression. In fact, they fully co-signed the acting out in the legal system. And now it's co-signed in social media and in the political realm. It's interesting, right? Right. So they're acting it out through that. Yeah. I mean, so I'm I'm reminded of this paper. There was a book uh, as well, uh, Moral Grandstanding. Uh, a couple of philosophers wrote this book, but they they wrote a paper too. They partnered with a, a psychologist and they you know they tested this empirically and basically they came up with this psychological construct called moral grandstanding. And they found that it was, you know, so moral grandstanders are, you know, I I think like a lot of people would think of it as like virtue signaling, people who are very interested in obtaining status and attention through uh, sort of strident moral beliefs and claims and, you know, saying, saying, basically accusing everyone else of being bad and, and look how great I am. And, you know, unsurprisingly, they found that moral grandstanding, it was, it was, it was highly significant and correlated with, um, with narcissism shocking right? like both grandiose shocking. and vulnerable shocking and and i'm <laughs> um, and i bet yeah, that, well and yeah. i i bet that used to be acted out in uh, religious great awakenings that kind of thing mm. right so like like religious leaders yeah. would, would maybe score high on these kind of yeah. personality traits particularly mm. the the sort of extremely moralizing you know that kind of thing it makes sense to me they would and <sighs> I, this, you know, the yeah. other thing I'm coming upon, I don't know if you're seeing any of this in the literature right now, but I, I keep bringing this up because I'm seeing so much of it, is is people getting to this sort of, I just can't care anymore. Like everyone's sort of burned out. I mean, things that use, and they're not depressed. It's sort of maybe a dysphoria of some type, but it's this thing that I just can't, no one seems to care, so I don't care. Or they care too much about shit and they burn me out and I don't care about that anymore either. But things that I used to, care about like completing a project or you know doing my whatever uh pursuing my career and whatever it is it's just like i'm I'm hearing this amongst physicians a lot too where they're like what we thought we were doing was so important and now i I, it's hard to care i can't care anymore it's weird so there's this sort of uh yeah sort of a burnout um, sort of burnout meets but it's not just burnout it's like the world around doesn't seem to care so why should i care like the word, no, there's yeah. no meaning in anything. Everyone, they're all, they're all telling me I'm full of shit. I'm worthless. I'm a privileged male. I, I don't have nothing to offer. So, okay. So I don't care. Huh? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I noticed a little bit of that. I mean, you know, throughout the lockdowns, throughout just a lot of what was going on over the last couple of years, people were sort of, I mean, I think at first there was this sort of collective, there's this poll that I, that I, you know, I think about on occasion 
it was published in the Atlantic, like early, I want to say late April, early May 2020, like right before all of the protests and demonstrations that kicked off that summer. But it was in the midst of COVID. And, you know, the, 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 they basically found that, like, you know, the survey questions asking Americans, you know, how unified do you feel with the country? You know, do you feel a sense of camaraderie with your neighbors? All of these things. And they were like higher than they had been in like 30 years. Uh, essentially, like, you know, once COVID hit, initially, the reaction was, oh, we're all in this together. Let's work hard. Let's overcome it. You know, there was a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, uniting to, to to praise healthcare workers and so forth. And then I think like, you know, as as the the lockdowns, you know, can, you know were prolonged, and there was a lot of uncertainty around it. Yep. I think a lot of the political stuff that was happening that year was tough on people. And yeah, I think like over time there, especially younger people too. I mean, I've, I've, I've met some young students here, some undergrads who basically like they don't use social media anymore. Like they, they have it and maybe they check it once in a while, but they don't post, they're not really engaged with it. Like they just, you know, I think they're just generally, um, yeah, like you said, burnt out with, uh, with all of the pressure that's involved with that. And, and yeah, with work, you know, maybe older adults, it sounds like, you know, they're, they're maybe like, there's a whole, like, have you heard the great resignation? Yeah. People just sort of foregoing work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, try to weird. prolong that experience. And now they're, they're making that political. So because the Apple employees don't want to go back to work, the, and they, and by the way, the work environment is idyllic. It's this incredible environment they've created for their employees. The, the, the mm-hmm. concept of going back to work is uh, privileged white male, therefore sexist and racist. Oh, so if they do go to work or don't go to work? If they're asked to go to work. If, if they're, they're asked, if to, they're go asked to, to go into work, <laughs> it, they, literally Apple employees have a letter. You have the letter, Gary? Is that what you're looking at? Yes, I do. L- listen to this. Apple will, all, <laughs> Apple will likely always find people willing to work here, but our current policies requiring everyone to relocate to the office their team happens to be based in and being in the office at least three fixed days of the week will change the makeup of our workforce. It will make Apple younger, whiter, more male-dominated, more neuronormative, more able-bodied. In short, it will lead to privileges deciding who can work for Apple, not who'd be best fit. Privileges like wow. being born in the right place so you don't have to relocate or... Being young enough to start a new life in a new city or country or having a stay-at-home spouse who will move with you and privileges like being born into a gender that society doesn't expect the majority of care work from so it's easier to disappear into an office all day without doing your fair share of unpaid work in society or being rich enough to pay others to do your care work for you. Instead of throwing money at the problem and just increasing referral bonuses to replace those of our colleagues who've left the executive team's who've left over the executive team's inflexibility, how about we create a work environment where everyone who wants to work at Apple is able to do so? So send that to to Rob, because I'm so, sure it will generate an article, <laughs> a substack. So please send that to him, okay? Yeah. I would love, yeah, yeah, send it, send it yeah. over. I mean, like that, that, so, so that final sentence, it sounds like they're saying literally anyone should, could, or, or yeah, should, or would be able to work at Apple but that means, well, what about qualifications, right? Like that's a privilege, right? Like being yeah. born into a position where you can yeah. obtain the necessary that's qualifications right. and credentials. Correct. That's a privilege or oppression yeah. or whatever too. So if you want to give a, you know, if you just want to hire a, a six-year-old right. from, you know, whatever country, it, it, it just, uh, yeah, you can work at Apple too. Anyone can be an Apple engineer. Right. So, um, so, so the logic is, the logic is flawed. The logic is flawed. Mm-hmm. The, the emotion is pathological. Uh, and mm-hmm. I have sort of two responses. Shut the fuck up. Just shut the fuck up, number one. And my other response is, oh, I don't care. It's too much. The fact that somebody can write that, it's like, I, I, can't, I can't. I can't. 
I don't yeah. care anymore. That's a care. problem, though. I mean, because like if you disengage completely, so you know, if you yeah, basically if you disengage completely, then you know, if if you and I want to be left alone, but two other people want to enforce their point of view, they're going to win. You know, I, I know. So, but like, it's, the, it's hard if to, when, when it's that insane. It's hard to care. Yeah. It's like it's like that's that yeah. that goes that rises to the level of of even something being to be paid attention to. Mm-hmm. And that you would even pay attention to that, oh, then I then I can't. Yeah. I'm done. I can't. It's a, come on. I, yeah. I, it's, I'm, I'm done. Even the ability to craft that, I mean, it, it really is. So so this idea of like you know cluster bees and people who who obtain these kind of positions and who are interested in power reminds me there was a, another study. This I think this was 2021. I want to say uh, basically finding that um, uh, victimhood signaling is highly correlated with dark triad traits. Well, of course, of course. You, you wrote a lot about that. I saw you put that in a number I, of places. Yeah, I wrote yeah. a couple of pieces about that. And it was it was stunning to me. I mean, it makes total sense because you know one thing that people who are high on the dark triad traits, you know, psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism, they like whatever environment you put them in, they will um, identify the the tools that they need to implement in order to uh, obtain the rewards that they desire. Right. You know, social rewards, material rewards. And so, from, so a from lot of the, people, from, I mean, if you work at Apple, from manipulation standpoint, but not not yeah, with right. not with hard work and engagement, but by manipulating. Right. And so if you can use morality as a p- possible weapon to please write uh, about to it, get people please to write, yield. please write, I'll amplify <laughs> it, please write. I, I'll care enough to retweet. <laughs> I'll care enough to <laughs> right. you can press the retweet button. Yes. It's about all I got in me now. Right. So the, there's two other topics I want to get to before, before we uh, wrap this up. And, and one is, I, I said the, your foster care experience was rolling around in my head a lot, and I'm not really sure why, but again, with the the one story about the kid getting smacked and the punched in the face, that was like, it's like to me, it was like the the moment where it's like, really, foster care? The, the word care, even that even appropriate here? But anyway. <laughs> The Jordan Harbinger Show. We love Jordan. Adam and I have known him for a long time. He's a brilliant guy. Lots of interesting life experiences. And he brings all of that to his podcast. And there's an episode with multiple fascinating guests. Something for everyone. The Jordan Harbinger Show. For instance, the FBI negotiator who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle. Jordan finds useful, interesting uh, wisdom, what things you can apply to your own life. It's a podcast you should definitely check out. And if you're a fan of high quality, fascinating podcasts, then this one is for you. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful information and wisdom from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something in it for you that you can apply to your life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just slight mindset tweaks or just knowledge, wisdom. I enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, and I think you will too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. From Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, it is The Jordan Harbinger Show. Michael Phelps Swim Spas. It's summer's coming. It's time to think about this stuff. It comes with a variety of sizes to complement almost any yard. The Michael Phelps Swim Spa by Master Spas has water current, so you can swim, do aquatic exercises. If you've got somebody older in your household, it can be very important therapeutically. The Michael Phelps Swim Spas are 100% made in the USA by Master Spas, the world's largest swim spa manufacturer. 
You will love it. The water buoyancy relieves pressure on aching joints if, you, if you've got them like I do. And you can enjoy pure relaxation in the massage therapy seats. Your family will love it. And since it's heated, you can use it year-round in any climate. Go to masterspas.com, put the promo code DREW to save $1,000 on a Michael Phelps swim spa or $500 on a Master Spa hot tub. That is masterspas.com, promo code DREW. SockDoc is a free app that shows you physicians who are patient-reviewed and take your insurance and are available when you need them. You can read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews. Go to ZocDoc.com, choose a time slot, whether you want to see the doctor in person or do a video visit. It is just like that you are booked. It's time that we used efficiencies this way. People are sort of used to it now because of telemedicine and the internet. Go to ZocDoc. Find that doctor that is right for you. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C. And in this chaotic world of healthcare, ZocDoc can be your trusted guide to find a quality practitioner. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Drew and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated physician today. Many are available within 24 hours. That is Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash Drew, ZocDoc. ZocDoc.com slash Drew. But the other thing is your story about the woman that your mom fell in love with. Um, Mm. I feel like she had a real impact on you. Did she not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she really did. I I, um, have written about this. uh, So there was an article in the New York Times I, I wrote about this, about how, you know, for a period of my, like that was probably the most stable period of my childhood was when my mother uh, met her partner, Shelly, and they raised me from, uh, I was age nine to 14, right before I started high school, or maybe, yes, yeah, right around there. And so about five years. And, you know, they, they sort of created this stable home for me, for my sister. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty good environment for us. I mean, you know, there was still like some, what, we moved around a, a bit and there was still like a little bit of financial instability, but well, at least fi- financial, years, it was financial good. illiteracy. They, they, be, mm. if they had been more financially literate, if someone had helped them, things could have been a lot more mm. stable, right? Right. Well, yeah. So what happened, my, you know, this was the, the summer before I started high school. Shelly, uh, you know, she, she and my mother were at a, a shooting range. I've told this story and my, my you know, so Shelly was basically shot. It was an accident. You know, there was a guy at the, you know, the stall, maybe a few, you know, a few stalls down who, um, actually was their friend. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Who, who, um, was just carelessly, you know, uh, jammed her gun and, you know, fired it accidentally into Shelly's back and so there was, and that was, that contributed a large degree to the sort of financial instability of the house and, you know, trying to deal with the insurance companies and so forth. But eventually they did receive a, you know, sort of insur- an insurance windfall, you know, to cover uh, sort of the healthcare costs, but then they also got, you know, the sort of uh, uh, damages and so forth. And they used this money. This was, when was this? This was like 2005, I want to say, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um where they were investing in houses and, you know, the housing market was hot, California, you know, this was like the thing, right? Oh, everyone's buying houses and flipping them and real estate prices never go down. They only mm-hmm. ever go up. And they very quickly just spent their cash on, on buying up houses uh, around Red Bluff where we were living. 
but they bought it at exactly the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, essentially all of our houses, including the one we were living in, they were all foreclosed at the same time. Uh, this was the yeah, right before my senior year of high school. And so we lost everything, right? It was really, I mean, this is the sort of the ups and downs of it, right? Like just the, the, the accident and Shelly's injury, the, yeah, the financial instability, but then we did have a, a period of a few months where they were okay and financially afloat, but then they lost everything again. And yeah, it was, it was really difficult for me. And, and part of it was because I didn't understand, you know, when I was a, a, you know, a kid and they were buying these houses and stuff like, you know, it just wasn't really, um, you know, I, I, just something that, that I didn't really grasp what they were doing and whether it was smart or, or misguided. Now, in hindsight, of course, like knowing everything that we know with the housing crash and the financial crisis, it totally makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, as a kid back then, I just didn't know um, what they were doing. And so, you know, I'm working on this memoir. And one of the things I try to do in this book was to um, communicate my experiences firsthand without um, any kind of rationalization or um, just just what it felt like at that time living in that kind of environment as a kid. And yeah, th- this was something like sort of emotionally transporting myself to that period of like, yeah, I really was kind of naive to a lot of what was happening uh, in in the home and and the struggles that my mom and her partner uh, were experiencing to keep some semblance of of the the family together. I, I don't know what child isn't they, they they it's not their business. That's the adult business of the adults to create the nest. And children don't have objective perspective. It's just this is their family. This is it. It's just what they are, yeah. and that, so they don't yeah. think in terms of, huh? <laughs> like, right? What's going on here? Yeah. What? Why am I? Uh, I don't yeah, know. I mean, it goes beyond family too. I yeah. mean, you know, just just I think that that you know, I'm describing my childhood, but like all of my friends in in that neighborhood in that community was you know they were all kind of the same, kind of like poor working class kids raised by single moms, raised by you know, like one of my best friends was raised by his grandmother because his mom, uh, you know, was addicted to drugs. His dad went to prison. Like that was just sort of the life that I was the most familiar with. And so I never thought it was unusual. You know, this is sort of the, the like the comments I'm getting from my editor on this book is like, you know, what was that like? And they're asking me, what was it like from the person? Like try to explain what it's like to, to someone who has never witnessed it firsthand, but because I'm writing it from my experience at the time, it wasn't anything. It was just life. It was know? just, yeah, it was just and, and, an uh, observation, just, just what, what it yeah, was. Just everyday life. Yeah. And so I, I can't really, it doesn't make sense for me to try to, you know, communicate it in that sort of like, you know, hey, upper middle class reader, like, yeah. let me take you into this. You know, it just didn't really work that way. So, so, and I think it's more effective this way in any way, yeah, in any case. And, and I think there's more going on with Shelley than you've yet perceived. I, I just, my sense, I think oh, I yeah. told you that. Um, yeah, there's something more there to be mined and, and, and I understand she was useful and important and, and you have great uh, affection for her, but there's something more there that I think when you find, kind of uncover, it'll help flush out your story a little bit. I think what, why did she leave again? Yeah. Well, yeah. So basically my, you know, after after the uh, injury, so after the after all the houses were foreclosed, my uh, let's see, I moved in with a friend because Shelley and my mother moved to San Jose uh, for, for you know I, I think you know for employment. You know, the job opportunities are just better in the Bay Area. And how old were you? Rebluff, you know, that sort of dusty Northern California town. I was sixteen at this That's time. Kind of weird, right? So already yeah, weird. moving into yet another home. But yeah, you, you abandoned your my kids friends. with your girlfriend. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it was, well, you know, I was, I was glad, honestly, because, you know, as funny as it sounds like I felt, you know, even though my, my friends were all like, 
maybe not all, but most of them were kind of screw ups like me. At least it was uh, familiar. And the idea of leaving them to go somewhere else to graduate and attend another school for one more year before I graduated was just unthinkable. No, I get it. So you've, I, been, you've been changing yeah. your living environment so many times by I that was, point. You too. know, I'd moved school so many times, yeah. Dr. Drew. Like, yeah. you know, but I, I, I think I was in, what, like five different schools before I entered the second grade. And then, you know, even in Red Bluff, there was a lot of sort of instability there. And so I just wanted to like be with my friends, you know, I, yeah. And yeah, I moved in with my best friend, his brother and his dad. And I, I knew this guy, you know, my best friend in high school, we'd known each other at that point for, I don't know, seven years or something. And that was like, you know, for me, that was a long time. And so, you know, so, so yeah, then, then while they were in San Jose, my, my, uh, my mom and her partner, Shelly, they split up my mother, uh, you know, got with someone else and Shelly was heartbroken by this, but you know, it was, it was tough, you know, I, don't know. They, I just, I said up. this before and I, I, I smelled it again. I smell drugs. I smell medicine. I smell medication. I smell pharmaceuticals. My, I just yeah, smell it. To my, to my knowledge. <laughs> I smell it. I know. Well, ask well, around. You know, I think, yeah, well, because it's going to be, yeah, I mean, of course. yeah, because it's going to be, well, I was just taking away the doctor prescribed it. The doctor prescribed this and, uh, and but then Shelly yeah. changed and blah, 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 blah. And we couldn't, we were conflicted a lot, but you know, she was taking the medicine the way the doctor told her to, it's going to be something like that. You know, it's funny you I, say that. I guarantee because, you. Because so, so Shelly herself, I mean, when I was growing up, she was like interested in gambling. Like I remember uh, she'd go to the casino quite a bit. Hmm. We would play, we would play board games. We'd play Monopoly. Hmm. Um, as a family and she was, you know, and so, so there was that. And I do wonder, you know, be, and, and again, like I, this is all sort of uh, speculation on my part, but after the, I mean, I, I can only imagine right. the, the amount of medication. That's right. She was and it just, it just kept going. Exactly. It's exactly what happened. Yeah. And then that, that and, made and her, that, yeah. that, that, that interferes in a relationship. And it also makes people make yeah. wild decisions. Like let's leave this 16 year old behind and go to San Jose. It's like, what? That's, that's weird. And I understand it was okay for you, yeah. but it's like, what? You must be on drugs, especially yeah. for a female to do that. And of course you probably will. I, mm. I guarantee you, you just to look around, you'll find it and it'll start to make more sense. Yeah. I think to, no you're you're not wrong i mean at the time i i totally didn't get it but like in hindsight thinking about all like even even yeah the idea of course i was very grateful to have been able to stay i get it but you know the idea of leaving my 16 year old somewhere that's right yeah uh, you know it's just unthinkable it's unthinkable right yeah it's uh yeah unless you're on drugs is like you know it's hard for me to be yeah yeah you know it's it it, it was hard to sort of uh to to dig into the that level of, of honesty you know because they were like you know the 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 sort of most you know for you know for whatever that's worth you know, yeah the most but you're sort of you're you're putting you're life. you're putting a pejorative mm-hmm. blush on it I'm not I'm just saying it's just a medical mm-hmm. thing it's just that's what happens and it's I, I have no judgment yeah, on it I, you're you're resisting because you don't want to see it because you you have a negative mm-hmm. affect attached to it I don't this is just people this is just people happened all the time yeah. back then doctors did it it's not her fault the doctors did it for yeah. Christ's sake I blame my yeah. peers yeah. I don't blame her. I blame her peers, but uh, I guarantee yeah. you that's in there. But let, let's finish up with uh, you describing what it was like to get to Yale and the kinds of political positions of the actually privileged types that you encountered there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, after so I, after high school, I joined the military. And yeah, yes, I sort of uh, did, but did my enlistment, went to uh, to Yale for my undergrad you know, went on the GI bill to, to pay for tuition. And yeah, I mean, seeing, um, you know, just sort of seeing what was going on there with like, okay, so, so my, my first semester, 
I wanted to take this class at Yale. Uh, and you got you got an Yale under of the problem child. Yeah, and you got <laughs> that's awesome. And, but you got an Yale yeah. under extraordinary circumstances. You were a fuck up. You were in yeah. the military. Military straightened you out a little yeah. bit, and you found this road to the Ivy League. This crazy opportunity, and you took it, and you got it. And so now you're there. Yeah, and yeah, the, and it was this, yeah, I was there. And the, diff, and the it difficult was, child. It was. Uh, it was <laughs> the difficult child. Yeah, it was. It was a surreal. It was uh, a surreal experience to to be able to get in there. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I took, it took a lot of work. I mean, it was, you know, so, but I, yeah, I, I got in there and yeah, I wanted to take this class concept of the, the problem child, which was taught by this child development expert. Um, I didn't get in, I got waitlisted, but, uh, you know, the, prof- I, I emailed the professor. She said, oh, you, you know, email me when, when I offer it again and I'll make sure you get a seat. And then I learned that I would never be able to take this class because the professor resigned. And the reason she resigned was because, you know, this was, she was Erica Christakis, the sort of infamous uh, controversy at Yale with the Halloween costumes and the sort of the protests that erupted in 2015. So this was, you know, the, the fall of 2015 when I arrived. All of these students were calling for professors to be fired, basically for defending freedom of expression, um, you know, basically standing up for students who wanted to, you know, basically speak their minds or express themselves or wear whatever Halloween costume they wanted, that kind of thing. And so seeing all of this happen was just a totally surreal experience for me. And I couldn't, yeah, I just couldn't believe that this was what was happening and interacting with some of the students there. And yeah, it it was um, realizing that they were speaking a language that I didn't quite understand. And you know, not not only the money part. I mean, everyone kind of knows, like, oh, these Ivy League schools—they're sort of rich universities, full of rich students. That's just sort of you know a well well known uh, fact. But one thing that I didn't anticipate was the sort of differences in our our upbringings beyond just money. And uh, one example of this: so I was at a, I was in the seminar, and the professor administered this anonymous survey to the class, and the question was, um, you know, were you you raised by both of your birth parents. And out of 20 something students in this class, um, only two said no, it was just me and one other student. I don't know who it was just me, you know, I could see so she, you know, the professor put the results up on the slide. And I was just floored by this because I was like, okay, so that means that more than 90% of the students in this class were raised by both of their birth parents. And then I thought back to my life, of course, but then all of the lives of my friends growing up, uh, you know, my foster siblings, my friends in Red Bluff, and it was, you know, the opposite, zero, it was 0%. Basically, I think I knew I had one friend in high school who was raised by his both of his birth parents. Um, but they probably weren't but together. that was the anomaly. They probably weren't even together. Yeah, well, they were, they, they were together. I don't know if they're. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what was yeah. going on there. There were, you know, but but yeah, that's. That was very much an, an anomalous situation where like, you know, divorce, step parents, whatever, like that was sort of the the typical situation. And that was my first sort of inkling into the, the, this idea that like, oh, okay, so they're not just different from me in terms of like socioeconomic background, but also in terms of like what their family structures were like. And gradually I grew to be aware that, you know, they, they were very much removed from the lives of, of me and the people that I grew up around and, and had this sort of misunderstanding about what it's like to grow up in, you know, not just, not just low socioeconomic status, not just in, in uh, you know, situations with poverty, but also um, severe disorder and instability and, and yeah, what's poor, going poor, on. Poor and, is one thing, but the ruptures and the chaos and the, the family abandonment and, and the abuse, that's, that's the ingredient. That's the ingredient. Yeah. So, so how did you feel about the, the, these privileged types speaking on behalf of you and your peers from where you can't hearken? It was, 
I, I couldn't, yeah, I, I couldn't stand it. Um, <laughs> they, yeah, I mean, they, you have these students who've, who've probably never even had a 10 minute conversation with someone who doesn't have a bachelor's degree. I mean, their, their whole world has been around people who are either, you know, very you know, much educated like themselves or people who are on that, that track to go to elite schools. I mean, there was one girl. So, so I, I questioned, um, a lot of the protests that were going on, you know, calling for these professors to be fired on campus. And there was one, uh, female student, she, you know, she herself had attended Exeter, which is an expensive private school. She grew up in Greenwich, which is like, you know, just a very rich you know town in Connecticut. It just, you know, basically had all of the, you know, all of the advantages you could ask for. And she told me that I was too privileged to understand <laughs> why these what'd, professors. What'd you say to her? What'd you harm. say? I, I, well, at first I was just so confused that I, I, I just paused, like it just sort of back like what yeah. like a pr- pr- yeah because it was just like it didn't compute because well first because i wasn't used to being called privileged yeah. because like that was just like a new idea to me yeah, just that yeah. like concept of i mean i've co- obviously i knew what privilege meant but but in this kind of context and the way that she was using it um didn't make sense to me and then later i kind of gradually grew to understand the kind of like the intellectual acrobatics necessary to say something like that to someone who you don't know Right. Because she had no idea what my background was, what my life was. All she saw were these sort of discernible, superficial characteristics of like, oh, he's a whatever. He's a cisgendered, straight, heterosexual male, you know, biracial Asian, whatever. Yeah, like, Yale. you know, all of these are yeah. kind of privileged yeah. Yeah, at Yale. Right. And so from her point of view, that just meant that like, oh, you know, privilege check, privilege check, that kind of thing. Um, but then I, you know, there were there was there was a problem here because I I would see like. There, there was a contradiction in this whole ideology because on the one hand, they thought that, um, you know, how you're born and your sort of discernible characteristics, you know, race, gender, sexuality, all of these things give you, these are credentials for you to expound on the world. These are, you know, important uh, markers for a person, right? And mm-hmm. But then they would also say that lived experience was extremely important. So if you, for example, if you'd cite statistics or research or studies or, or general sort of... Um, observations, they would say, uh, well, that's not my lived experience as an XYZ, my lived experiences. And so on the one hand, they're saying, you know, your your discernible characteristics are the most important thing about you. But then on the other hand, they're saying your lived experiences are also critical to being able to opine on various issues. And so I'm like, okay, well, depending on what's what useful is more to them, important, whatever this is back. To exactly. Cl- this is back to cluster B. <laughs> it's back to cluster B. So well, I, <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, and so is this changing? Mm-hmm. Are we are we getting out of this insanity? I I think a little bit. I mean, it, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think generally, yes. But at the universities, you know, I'd probably get in trouble at Cambridge for saying this. But, but like, I, I, I don't really see elite universities changing much. I mean, that's like, this is where this stuff is. I mean, this is what I learned, right? Like, this is, these places are where these ideas are born and nurtured, cultivated, and then sort of spread throughout the rest of society are, you know, very affluent people at top tier universities. Yeah, but it seems like they're tolerating the likes of... never had the, contact. They're tolerating the likes of you, right? 
Yeah, I mean, for now, I, but, but here's, so here's an, I mean, it, we'll see how much longer that goes. I mean, I've had two conversations with two different professors here at Cambridge who've privately said that they're surprised nothing has happened to me. Huh. Uh, these are full professors, tenure professors who, and, and, and they say that like, yeah, you know, I, I admire your courage and all this. And I'm thinking like courage, like, I don't think I say anything that crazy. Like, I think I'm pretty much well within the bounds of it's, it's because your lived maybe, experience you know, being reasonable your, be, your yeah. lived experience gives you a certain amount of permission. I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's an amulet. It is. It is. If I tried to say right, it, I would be yeah. I would be vilified. And so that that's I why I yeah. like interviewing you because you say things that I know scientifically to be so. And but I can't say it. I cannot say it. Yeah, and I, it's and sad. The, but, I mean, it's sad that this is the case. Well, the fact that we can have the conversations is an improvement. I, I couldn't even have the conversation two years ago, and so mm. here we are. But listen, we got to wrap this up. I can always talk to you all day long. I mean, I, I thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, you can again, it is Rob K Henderson Substack Cam. Is uh, how about Twitter? Are you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, uh, same thing. So at Rob K Henderson. So Rob, the letter K Henderson, and yeah, definitely sign up for my Substack. Great. And we will, I know you're working on a memoir. And so we'll get you back up here when the, that public comes around. And in the meantime, just look, don't, don't feel bad. Shelly, I, I know you have huge, you adore Shelly and that this shouldn't diminish that mm. at all. It's just that just, you got to flush that out because th- yeah. there's some missing data there and, and I, and I smell it. I know it when I see it, you know what I mean? I just kind of dealt with it so much. And, and it makes me, yeah. it makes to me, they say if I were reading that story, you know, in your memoir, it makes Shelley a more complete person, frankly, because it's like, yeah. oh, okay, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can you can love people with on substances. I, I mean, it's no problem. <laughs> no no problem course. in my world. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Not at all. It wouldn't change my <laughs> yeah. opinion of, yeah. of of anyone. Yeah. But but yeah, you know, of course, like I I guess it for me it doesn't change my opinion. But I I think that like for them. Right. Like, I, I, I just think that, like, a lot of people who well, your you know, mom would do know. get involved in substances and stuff like they would be like, you know, it's it's uh, it can be self-conscious about it. And oh, so, yeah. But, but yeah. Again, I don't know. It's it's kind of speculative. But but again, like, I, I, I think there is, you know, well, your, I, your, your mom would be able to yeah. tell you your mom would be more clear about that. That yes, that may that they'll if they connect the dots, you know, with yeah. what led to their demise. Yeah. I'm sure she'll well, she loves that. you, Dr. Drew. So well, if I say okay, like Dr. Okay. Drew so, so, so suspects this, she's going to be like, oh, what? Really? I guess she, she, <laughs> well, she loves it, your work. So, it makes perfect yeah. sense after the injury and they just keep her on stuff. And that was in that day and age when it's pain is whatever you say it is. And we got to get the pain out of control, you know, and, and it makes mm. people change. It makes people do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And it's sad to me that my peers did that to people. Um, mm. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. You, your sister doing okay these days? Yeah. Your mom doing okay? Yeah, yeah, they're good. They're good. I mean, you know, things are crazy in California. As I mean, you. you live there, so you know. It's, it's insane. <laughs> but but uh, no, they're 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 doing well. Yeah, everyone is, uh, you know, doing as doing as well as as uh, as as you can expect. And yeah, yeah, I'm just uh, hoping it, it continues that way. Great. Well, listen, I look forward to hearing from you some more. And uh, whatever we can do to support and amplify your your ideas, please let us know. Absolutely. Thank you, Doctor Drew and Robert Henderson. Thank you so much. We'll see you all next time. For call-in times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes.
purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Lowry and this is V Rivera. We're the hosts of Baby, Baby Mama's, Mama's No, no Drama. Drama. Every Tuesday, we talk about parenting, co-parenting, lifestyle, and sex, pop culture, current events, and pretty much all the things you want in one podcast. So download and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Listen to us every Tuesday and join us with all the tea.